and welcome to the inaugural episode of Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And we're embarking on a project to examine 100 years of film scores, the American Film Institute's list of purportedly the top 25 film scores in American cinema history. We're starting at the bottom with number 25, which means what you're about to hear was our very first take at trying to make one of these. Yeah, we had to sort of feel our way into what we were doing. Nonetheless, in this episode, we're going to be talking about Alfred Newman's score to the 1962 epic western, How the West Was Won. How the West Was Won was produced for MGM by Bernard Smith. It was written by James R. Webb, and it was directed by John Ford and by Henry Hathaway and by George Marshall. Andy, what is it like to watch How the West Was Won? Well, How the West Was Won is a Western, but it's not really a normal Western because, first and foremost, it's a Cinerama spectacle. So what it's really all about is seeing these beautiful, very widescreen images of the American landscape. And it stars just a cavalcade of famous names of Hollywood of the time, pretty much everyone they could book. Uh, the story follows the progress of a certain family as its several generations wind up playing parts in some of the key episodes in the settlement and expansion of the American West throughout the 19th century. Right, through these sequences respectively called the rivers, the plains, the civil war, the railroad, and finally the outlaws, we get to see pretty much every stop on the standard history book vision of the American West in the 19th century. Good enough? Yeah, good enough. Whatever we're about to say about this movie, that's a pretty good beginning of a main title. Oh yeah, it's a hell of a main title. So the premise here is that we are talking about movie scores that people think are worth talking about. And we have picked from the AFI, what do they call it? 100 Years of Film Scores. That is the name of the list. There you go. And John, you were at the concert at which this was announced, you've told me. Yeah, that's right. It was at the Hollywood Bowl. And uh, John Mosseri and the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra played clips from each of these movies on the AFI list as they were unveiled. Uh, and they played them two picture. They have screens set up and they counted down from 25 to one. And this was the first one they played. And I do not remember what clip they played from the movie. Visually, but almost undoubtedly what they played was what we just heard. Yeah, probably. Now, I'm somewhat giving away the game here, but I am wondering if perhaps the reason that this is listed as the 25th greatest film score of all time is so that they could start the concert with that not because they actually thought it was the 25th greatest film score of all time. That's a really good guess, and <laughs> maybe so. I, the game that you don't want to give away is that you don't think this is the 25th greatest film score, which is also something I wanted to consider. Yes, well, we're going to uh, talk our way to you know what number greatest film score the two of us think this is. But yes, they had a ballot of maybe 250 film scores suggested yeah. by scholars as possible greatest film scores. Now, I had never seen How the West Was Won before, and I didn't have any opinions about it going in. But having come out the other end, I find it hard to believe that it's number 25 by any voting process. I am with you. <laughs> I have also never seen this movie You have actually before. been at a Cinerama theater. You've seen three strip Cinerama, as they call it. You know, I don't know if I have. I've been in the Cinerama Dome, the Arclight Cinerama Dome here in Hollywood, 
And yes, the screen does curve around you there, but I don't believe that it's the same three-screen format that this was shot in anymore. When you say Cinerama, after I've just said Cinerama, is this something about which you have a strong opinion? <laughs> uh, no. What did, which one did I say? I said Cinerama, and you said, well, I've been to the Cinerama Dome. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm correct. Okay. I mean, if you ask me to have a strong opinion, I will. Okay. Cinerama sounds like uh, dopey. Cinerama. You're right. Especially I, uh, if you say it dopey sounding. Yeah, which I often do. I don't actually think about Cinerama very often, or Cinerama. <laughs> I had never really thought directly about it before, but this movie forced me to think about it. because. This movie so when you go to the Museum of Natural History and you see those displays of, uh, you know, the taxidermied animals with the painted backgrounds, what do you call that? I call that a diorama. You do not call it a diorama. You call it a diorama like a person. Yeah, well, I have some inherited, I don't know, New Jerseyisms from my parents, maybe, or I don't feel the need to dignify myself when I'm saying diorama, cinerama, whamurama, lama. That's the vowel. That's my vowel. So the the cinerama process was was it actually three cameras on a rig pointing in three separate directions? It was some kind of yeah melded together three cameras behemoth. And then those three separate strips of footage were projected basically on three separate screens that were had a seam between them. So we're talking about the cinerama of it because my assessment of this movie is that it just isn't really a movie movie. It's a cinerama experience. And yeah. when you're not in the cinerama dome or wherever, it's a very strange piece of film. Yeah, it is very strange. And it has its ups and downs. It's kind of like a movie you would watch at Disneyland in some animatronic environment or a, you're strapped in. There's a ride aspect to it. And when you take the ride away, that's not really a full-fledged movie. It's like Captain EO or, or Star Tours or something. I felt like I was watching the film component of some ride. Yeah, and sort of like that cliche of a hokey theme park presentation, like a Hall of Presidents kind of thing. It has this very mannered didactic feeling to it. So it says at the beginning that it's based on articles from Life magazine about how the West was won over the course of the 19th century. I didn't look into them at all, but it felt kind of like someone had read some articles and then made a Hall of Presidents out of the headline from each one. Yeah, that's right. One from what, you might ask? Well, Spencer Tracy will tell you right in the first couple sentences of the movie. This land has a name today and is marked on maps. But the names and the marks and the land all had to be one. One from nature and from primitive man. So that uh, tells you off the bat what you're getting in for. Yeah, you're talking about the political issues here? Yeah, so this definitely is of its era, and this was made in 1962. It was probably the end of the era in which you could have made such a movie. In terms of its portrayal of the Native Americans? In terms of its sincere belief in American exceptionalism and... Uh, manifest destiny. Manifest destiny, yeah. yes. I wasn't sure you were going to want to talk about that because, you know... Sometimes those conversations can lead away from the movie, but I actually found myself thinking about it as I thought about the score. To begin to talk about the score in most general terms, I felt like the fact that this movie didn't really have a storyline, didn't really have any dramatic arc, didn't really have any reason to exist other than as a spectacle, put a lot of burden on Alfred Newman to 
give some dramatic thrust to it in musical form or, or you just make it feel like an event that had some coherence by playing music the whole time that had some coherence. Yeah. And he, in effect, by deciding what to make sound triumphant and when to sort of try to catch the audience's heart with the music, had to make some political decisions. My question to myself was, that theme that we heard... Um, that you hear throughout the movie a zillion yeah. times. A zillion times. What does it refer to? Like, what is it the theme of? Is it the theme of the West? Is it the theme of the West being one? Is it the theme of the landscape or of the people? And, you know, do the Indians get it or do they not? Is it not for them? Uh, I think it's the theme for the pioneer spirit. Uh, of exploration and settlement. I mean, I think that's about right. And certainly at the end, spoiler alert, <laughs> it turns out to have lyrics. Yeah. The very, very end. Yep, it does. So I had asked myself this question as I was watching it, like, I wonder if he thinks this is the theme of the beautiful American landscape or if he thinks it's the theme of the pioneers. And then at the end, they are singing words as if to answer my question directly. They're basically singing about, um, yep, all the Americans who won the land, that's how the West was won. That is the meaning of the theme. And so when they would show a landscape with Indians in it and play kind of a quiet version of the theme, you know, the viewer is really being forced to make this decision for themselves. Like, are the Indians, is it being won from them or are they just part of this pageant yeah, I admit to wincing when I heard that opening narration and was really kind of worried about what I was in for. But I will admit that I guess I was somewhat impressed that they at least presented that issue as having a complication to it. The script, I'll just come out and say, is god-awful. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> and it won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay, which is just... Shocking. Did the score win for best score? The score did not win. It was nominated, but it did not win. And it lost to something. It lost to Tom Jones, score by John Addison, which, you know, you can kind of see that as an old guard and a new guard kind of moment. The Tom Jones score is very saucy and kind of pseudo Baroque with a lot of winking, but like the whole movie. And How the West Was Won is a very classic old school score I'm glad you mentioned old guard because I think that when you suggested that this made the list as number 25 so that they could use it as the overture I think you're right that that probably was a part of its selection I think another part is that it is a standard bearer for and a sort of a stand in for the old school grandiose super sincere, romantic European orchestra score. 
I mean, Gone with the Wind is on the list, is high up on the list. Yeah, Gone with the Wind is, is number two, I think. Yeah. No, there are a bunch of them. And I think maybe more than there need to be to sort of be a representative sample of history. So my first thought was, oh, I guess they needed it to represent Westerns. But then I looked at the list. No, that's not the case. The Magnificent Seven is a much superior Western score. And there it is. Yes. And a superior Western movie. Most are. I guess that's not true. There are many, many low-rent Westerns. And this, for all that we can say against it, and I have even more to say against it, but for (laughs) all that you might say against it, it has beautiful images in it. Like the Cinerama vistas are gorgeous. Really so. Not only that, I was super impressed with some of the action sequences, as it were. And that must have been really something for an audience in 1962, especially if they did see it in Cinerama. The river rapids in the end of the first section, mm-hmm. and there's a Cowboys and Indian shoot 'em up galloping horse sequence. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Buffalo Stampede. And then at the end, there is like a gunfight on the top of a moving railroad train that was pretty damn good like i i feel like this similar action sequence in skyfall the recent james bond movie where there's a fight on top of a train and they go from car to car like that owes a little something to that sequence where they there's stuff happening from car to car and then they're one of the train cars has uh, enormous tree logs on it and they're hanging off of either end of the tree logs and they're rolling around and pretty good action stuff happened right yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Okay, so now we come to a, a big bone that I have to pick with the score. Why wasn't the train action sequence scored? Right. Why also wasn't the climactic river raft whitewater rapids sequence scored? There was no music for these important, climactic, tense action sequences. And I was just trying to think, like, was it just a different set of uh, expectations, different sort of judgment system about what got music and what didn't? But I could not believe it. I was tearing my hair out that there was no music during these sequences. And I feel like... All right, so let's... Yeah, go ahead. Let's start to dig into the score as a whole. I feel like you're addressing something that can be talked about in terms of the overall strategies of this score. I also noted what you're noting. Of the, I guess there's four major action sequences, only one of them is scored, which is the Indian attack. Right. Yes, the the river rafting, just sound effects. The buffalo stampede, just sound effects. The buffalo stampede, I could kind of see. That made a little bit more sense to me than the other ones because it's, it is so loud, just the buffaloes running, but, you know. But I guess the Whitewater River was loud too, and that still needed a score really bad. Uh, yeah, so the, the rafting, the buffalo, and last and longest of all, the train were completely unscored climactic action sequences. So it seems to me this is not a coincidence and not an oversight. There must have been a specific intention, and I think it has to do with the Cinerama and the whole conception of the movie, that it would have certain ride-like features in it. Buffalo are going to be charging directly at you. This was my theory for why that had been chosen, that they thought that is a set piece, that's a feature, you know, that's a ride in itself. And that ride, when conceived on its own terms wouldn't be scored it'd be about the 
visceral experience of you're on a raft or buffalo are charging at you. And they didn't actually think about those sequences in dramatic terms. They just thought about whether they were delivering this kind. You know, I bet that actually probably someone said, well, if there's music, it's less realistic. We want this yeah. to be the most realistic experience possible. It's supposed to be like a roller coaster, and you can't hear music on a roller coaster. At least in those days, you couldn't. Now they have speakers. So that was my theory about what that was. And to tie that into the bigger, what was Alfred Newman trying to get done? I think what he was trying to get done is convince you that you were watching a movie instead of being on like a series of rides I got the impression that he felt the thing this movie needed the most was a sense of the romance, the dramatic through line about the family, the epic and he just you know, slopped it on he just did that routine under all of those scenes and the stuff like the action, well that was working <laughs> so he left that alone yeah that's what I thought was going on. Well, I would be very curious to know, you know, if that decision did come from him or from the directors, plural. Yeah, I think you're right that Newman was trying to unify the intergenerational story and make that into a dramatic thing where it really wasn't. That was my theory for what his intention was. The problem with the theory is I think that it's kind of a doomed intention it ends up having at least for me my first time watching when i was just watching it as a viewer and letting the music do its work i feel like the music actually had a counterproductive effect of making me think well that music sounds romantic but nothing romantic is happening I'm like well the music sounds like this is an epic story but it isn't trust me I think what you just said articulates well why I don't think that this does belong in the top 25 film scores. Because even though the music intrinsically is glorious and there is an awful lot of it and it is an impressive accomplishment and it is a very laudable piece of work, it does not marry with the visual and with the storytelling in a transcendent way. I think that it would be impossible for any score to this movie to be one of the 25 best scores because it needs to be a good movie too. I think that's right. And I want to go even further in a sacrilegious direction here and say that while this reflected great professionalism and clearly a mastery of craft, yeah. I am willing to blame it in part for not making certain parts of this movie easier to take. I feel oh, that, sure. that yeah, that's he tried point. to make a sale that was unmakeable in a lot of scenes, and there is probably a more graceful way to score it. And I'm willing to lay some of that on his shoulders and say, you shouldn't have thought that if you played love music under this, it would work. You should have found something that was more in sync with what was actually there on screen. My mom and pa, they wanted a farm in the West... And this is as far as they got. Seems to me this is where the Lord wanted the farm to be. But your brother Sam, he bad hurt and winter's There's coming. no sense talking about it, Linus. I'm going to do it. Eve, you just ain't making much sense. Now, half the people what come west don't make much sense, I reckon. Yeah, it's, it follows out of the too many cooks problem with the directors and the overall ambition of the production, which was to 
cram everything in there and cram as many people in there uh, without thinking critically about the dramatic storyline and, uh, you know, about the simple mechanics, the nuts and bolts of the storytelling. You know, I always think that the direction of a composer by the director is a very important element of storytelling. And in order for the director to do a good job at it, he must be able to distill the same kind of storytelling decisions as when he directs the movie overall. He has to have an idea of what is happening in the scene, what are the important elements that should be emphasized, what the important emotion or point of view in the scene is. And those are the things that should be conveyed from a director to a composer in a productive relationship so that the music can be part of the storytelling toolkit. And I think that it wouldn't have been possible for such a conversation to be had productively. Right, because there's no answers to those questions right. in this movie. There are no answers to those questions. So the fact that the score was well-composed music, but a little bit aimless and a little bit unmoored, reflects the fact that the movie-making was unmoored. Those qualities in both the film overall and in the film's music, I think, very, very often go hand-in-hand hand and uh, you know reflect one another. Absolutely. I, of course, agree. Uh, but again, I am willing to, I mean, I don't know how to do it. I don't know, certainly off the top of my head, and I imagine even if I had a lot of time, I'm no Alfred Newman. I wouldn't necessarily know how to do it. And yet I still am able to hypothesize that there might exist some way that a movie like this could use music with, yes, just as he does some kind of theme that you recognize at the beginning that you hear throughout that unifies the whole thing through music and just doesn't overplay its hand. Because I think at some level, what he was doing did serve the movie. And the moments when I felt most that he had managed to make me feel that I was kind of watching an epic Western, yeah, was during this sort of interstitial, Spencer Tracy shows back up, you know, he tells you that time is passing, you see the mountains, yeah. and the music kind of captures something of the grandeur of the visual and gives you a thematic connection to the previous time you saw that. And that thematic connection also connects to stuff you've heard during the dramatic scenes. But far less amusing to the Indians was the coming of the steel roadway of the Iron Horse. The surveyor's route lay through immense natural barriers, the Rocky Mountains, and the equally discouraging High Sierras. But rain I thought this is kind of working. You're kind of convincing me at some subconscious level that this is all of a piece in, in some weird way that corresponds to this music. Right, but and then that was the he only move. That well, that was the only move that made sense because that's sort of the move that they set out to make the move of having these gorgeous vistas and a stentorian narrator and stirring music, you know, this kind of stirring documentary PSA about American manifest destiny was what they wanted to do. And when they were doing that most explicitly is when it's most successful. So that move works. And yes, using that same move on things that are not explicitly that doesn't work and it doesn't work in the filmmaking and it doesn't work as well in the score. Let's talk about the fact that this movie has an overture and an on-track and exit music. It's this, like, you know, event movie making. 
And it, it just seems asinine to me to be listening, especially to like choral songs, which is what most of the overture and the on-track are, while you look at a blank screen or a screen that says overture on it. It's such an old-fashioned idea of showmanship. I know, you know, it's 60 years later or 50 years later, but I can't imagine that people in 1962 were sitting there and, and thinking, wow, this is really... This is really something. I'm sitting in a darkened theater listening to recorded music. Does that work for you when there's an overture to a movie? No, it always feels a little hokey and, and ill-conceived. Yeah. So this score is, in fact, by Alfred Newman and Ken Darby. And Ken Darby is this choral arranger that had made a... It started a collaboration with Newman making all these giant musicals. And his style is just the hokiest old Hollywood here comes the big chorus and you know it's an important moment stuff and it keeps coming up in this movie we talked about how at the end there's lyrics to the main theme but the overture is the Ken Darby chorus singing some folk tunes Now, there are a lot of folk tunes actually worked into the movie, uh, both in the score, in this choral treatment, but also you see some sort of folk singing happening. You hear some smaller scale folk song singing over certain visuals. And I kind of understood it that Ken Darby was sort of like the uh, the T-Bone Burnett of Like of this he wrangled movie that the he, folk material. Yeah, he curated exactly the pre-existing folk material for Well, it. that may be, but Newman integrated that into his writing. Oh, yes, absolutely. Things like, uh, you know, Shenandoah. And uh, the Erie Canal song. The tune, the, there's a Greensleeves tune, right? And it's got words that I... They wrote for this movie, lyrics by Sammy okay. Kahn, and they turned it into a song yeah. called uh, Home in the Meadow or something like that. Away, away, come away with me Where the grass grows wild Where the winds blow free It was strange that they picked Greensleeves, which has such strong uh, English-British associations, at least for, yes, to my yes. ears. Even though, yes, it was a song sung by the settlers, like, so were other songs. Why? I don't know why they picked Greensleeves. And the movie also has Debbie Reynolds, full of pep, doing her Debbie Reynolds thing, singing a bunch of show tunes as Debbie Reynolds, which are, uh, you know, extracted from folk material, but... They are not folk material when Debbie Reynolds is singing them. Where's our ruckus tonight? Do you hear me? Come on along. Little children, come along. While that moon am shining bright. Come along now, tune up that string. And let that banjo ring. We want to get the ruckus tonight. Sing it out now. Come on. I mean, I... 
my heart goes out to Debbie Reynolds. I thought about her her untimely passing a lot while I was watching this, but um, it's a jarring element in the movie. You'd say I think that she's the star of the movie, right? Doesn't it... I think she probably has the most screen time? Yeah, yeah, that's right. All of these uh, laundry list of uh, celebrities that are in the movie. She's in the very beginning, and and I think she sticks around to the very end, and she yes, turns that's up right. at the she's most the, points in she's between. She's the survivor. Yeah. Okay, so what I was going to say earlier, so first there's the overture, we don't need to listen to any of that, then there's the main title, which is a successful main title, it's a very strong theme. Actually, the one thing I wanted to say about the main title, uh, I had not heard this before, even though it's one of the great themes. You had heard it at the concert. Is this something that you could have hummed if I said, hum the theme from the, How the West Was Won? I don't think so. No, not off, not from memory before I watched it again. I, I certainly, I knew the title, and I knew that it was one of the famous themes, and I thought, when I hear it, I'll recognize it. But I truly didn't. It was not familiar to me. It's not really played out of context a lot. And the first thing that it snapped to mind was, oh, now I get what Alan Silvestri was imitating for Back to the Future Part 3. It was <laughs> immediately yeah. this. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. Uh, and the specific element of it that I thought, well, he definitely does that, and I actually mused on a little bit, maybe you have some insight into it, is the uh, the rhythm of, I played the very beginning here. So then as it plays, that da-dun-dun-dun-dun becomes part of the accompaniment. Da-da-dun. Yeah. Dun-da-dun. Now, what... As far as I am aware, the only reason that that's associated with the Old West is via Aaron Copeland. I don't believe that there is an actual folk justification for thinking of a syncopated dun-da-dun-dun-da-dun-da-dun as, as a Western thing, but it has such a strong association now. So I think it goes back to, like, Rodeo or Billy the Kid, one of those Copeland ballets, but I don't know. Do you have different insight into that? I think that's probably correct. No, I don't think I have a different insight, um, but... Because it's strange, it's it's not a period sound, it's a very no, 20th century sound. But Copeland so completely defined, you know, the idea of Americana symphonic writing. And uh, I think that these composers were absolutely helping themselves to that. Before I watched the movie, and I just wanted to hear what the tune was, I listened to some compilation of Western themes on uh, Spotify. And, you know, you listen to four or five of them in a row, and you immediately start to notice this pattern that, like, yeah, they kind of take something that sounds like a folk theme, and then they put this rollicking orchestral texture underneath it. Pretty much every Western sounds like that. Like, the orchestra has a lot of force, and the actual tune is sort of folky. pretty much the Copeland Ballet approach. Does it predate the Copeland Ballets in Hollywood? And I went back and back, and I think the earliest Hollywood Western that was on that compilation or that people talked about as having a Western score was uh, Red River 1948 had that sound.
I even found one from the early 40s. And then I found one from the 30s, and it wasn't that way at all. So the first Copeland Ballet is, I think, 1938, uh, Billy the Kid. So without any further evidence, my inclination is to believe that he kind of invented the whole approach out of whole cloth. Uh, I have nothing to contradict you. I think that sounds pretty plausible to me. So there's the overture, then there's the main title, and then there's the first cue, which I think is one of the good cues because it's under the first narration. I think the narration cues are pretty good. And the first thing we hear... I immediately sat up, and again, I wasn't really taking notes, but I I did think, oh, you know, when they do imitations of Aaron Copeland, it's not usually so good or sophisticated, but this is pretty good. The visual here is like a helicopter shot of the mountains. Yeah. I thought that this is both sort of tasteful and, uh, you know... Understated. Understated, which is not really where the movie ends up. No. Uh, So I respect it. And it's understated given that what you're watching is immediately spectacular. Like, the Cinerama people did not save the goods. You're immediately watching. You're flying through snow-covered Rockies. Yeah. So it turns out that this little bit of music, which I thought, oh, that might be my favorite thing in the movie, actually recurs again and again, which I didn't notice until I actually went through the score to pay attention. But da-da-da-da-da-da-da. He brings it back again and again, but it's one of those themes that the audience never notices. When I was watching it, the only theme I was able to track was the main theme, which you hear a hundred times. Okay, finally to my point. So here's the first time he lays something under dialogue. I think this is the dialogue where we hear the two sisters chatting together. So obviously that's a, you know, sentimental strings only version of the main theme. It's very sweet and very lovely and very exactly the full statement of the entire theme with no uh, bends in the road. Right, exactly. Because he does not give a crap about what they are saying to each other. And he uses (laughs) exactly that arrangement, which is 
truly professional, like at a very high level of polish, how to make something sound like a sweet string classicized arrangement of a theme. Very well done. He uses that same thing nearly verbatim. I mean, I didn't compare note for note, but I think that very same arrangement comes up under four or five dialogue scenes in this movie. Right. As though to say, here is a sentimental moment in the movie, how the West was won. Exactly. That is what it is saying to you. It's saying to you loud and clear and with with a lot of class, it's saying that and nothing else. Right. So my point, the, the larger point that I wanted to make is that I consider it a failing on his part not to even pretend to care about things because if you <laughs> if you catch moments in the dialogue if you catch moments where a character realizes that they know who they want to marry or whatever these stupid things that are happening in these romances <laughs> if when carol baker is like i don't know but i i'm going to see that man again we're going to get married he had played it to show the audience that this really mattered he be back I'll see him again. But you expected to see him this morning. You know you did. I don't care. I'll see him again. Look. Yeah, to pick a moment, to spot the spot the scene for its points of inflection and its and its beats. You got a grown man to do that? I did. Just like in the book. Did you get him to say them crazy words? I told you before, take the words as a sentiment. You mean, he didn't even giggle or nothing at such foolishness? He said it was a real solemn occasion, like shooting the rapids without a paddle. Now, obviously, he does a little of it. It's not completely negligent, but there's just a very strong sense coming through the way the scoring is done that he saw these as a scene with a certain character, which is exactly how it feels like it feels like the producer was like we're gonna have some love scenes in this movie and we're gonna have some angry scenes and we're gonna have sad scenes when people die and the scoring is kind of like pieces of music with as you say no inflection points no cue marks in them from beginning to end that match that tone and play for three minutes or whatever under these scenes and i consider that yeah kind of a, a missed opportunity to try and goose this movie in a direction that I, it just seems like everyone was like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen that this is going to seem like a good <laughs> piece of drama. So why even try? Yeah, I think that they they thought that selling the, uh, you know, selling the, the film strip for the classroom film strip uh, ethos that they wanted to sell was was what they wanted to sell. Right. Um, so it's like a it's a wonderful film strip score, but I think a lot of film strip scores are pretty good. You know, it, it exists at this level like you wouldn't listen to that arrangement in the concert hall by itself. It's not quite interesting enough and it doesn't really live with the dialogue. It's just kind of like suitably bland enough to be underscore disinterested handling of these themes. I don't know. So I, it's very hard for me to feel like uh, he deserves praise for having written wonderful music. I feel like he kind of did the pro thing. And he was as pro as it gets. So my th thinking about why he's on the list is in part because they wanted him on the list to honor him. Yeah, that's fair. I was thinking, like, what would I want to be there instead? And it occurred to me maybe the good, the bad, and the ugly is, I mean, it's definitely a better score, don't you think? That's Morricone, right? There's yes, not even a Morricone. Oh, no, there is. There, there is a Morricone. Right, there's the mission. But there, there are other composers who have more than one score on the list. They could have had that, and Morricone certainly deserving of having two scores in the top 25. Yeah, I think there might have been a kind of let's honor Alfred Newman, who was famous 
first of all, for having gotten the most nominations, I think, ever. Right. He uh, may be scoring the most movies ever, a hundred, more than a hundred. I don't remember how many. Being the patriarch of this incredible family of film That's scorers. right. And also, a, I think, a mentor figure to a lot of the major composers of the next two generations, where somewhere here it said Raxon and Hermann, and I think even yeah, younger right. people said that Alfred Newman, you know, helped them. Everyone liked him, and he was obviously skilled. And I don't think he really has a movie that's more his star movie than this. I think uh, Song of Bernadette is considered sort of one of his achievements, but none of his movies are really movies that have survived quite as well, you know, as some of these others. Maybe he just didn't luck out. He, you know, he didn't score Gone with the Wind. He didn't score any of these movies that are all-time classics. Or maybe it has something to do with the approach he took. Um, there's just something very old school about what right. he cares about and what he doesn't. Yeah. I think that if we were to continue talking through other cues in this score, which... Yeah, there's too many. God's sake, let's not do. Uh, I think we would probably have a, a lot of similar things to say about them, that they are, you know, very tidy statements of the theme in one style or another. Um, yeah, so another style that he uses frequently is uh, accordion solo. That's kind of... Uh -huh. The underlying uh, texture of the whole thing. That's that same uh, Copeland theme. But of course you don't recognize uh -huh. it. It's a little different. Oh, I recognize that right. theme. There's a lot of scenes that are scored like this. This is this is the scene when um, uh, Carol Baker is coming on strong to Jimmy Stewart. God knows why. Doesn't make right. any sense. <laughs> so we really get a lot of the same kind of stuff. Either a down version, you know, a, a dialogue bed version of the main themes, or a prominent you know, epic version of the main themes. A cue that stuck out in my memory is when Jimmy Stewart is approaching the Carl Malden-led Pioneer Party on his canoe, and they at first don't know if he's friend or foe, uh, and they're uh, anxiously running up to the waterfront to to meet the canoe. Mm -hmm. And that was, there's some very Copeland-esque fast Oh, fast violin figures. stuff. That's, I believe, is this fast violin stuff. called First Meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's it. I I like pricked my ears up when this happened and thought, oh yeah, this is great. This is great stuff. And then it didn't happen. Again. Ah, remember what movie you're watching? Right. So this is a kind of fake. This is that's like. Carl Malden's suspicion of Jimmy Stewart being represented in the muted brass and the ominousness. It's, it's just Jimmy Stewart coming, who we, as the viewers, already know from the initial montage, is benign. A nice guy. Yeah, right. So this is actually, I would say, an example of good scoring, because it, he's playing more drama than the viewer is, in fact, inclined to even uh, perceive in the scene. It gives some thrust to what's going on, even though... It has no particular meaning. I think for a movie like that, like this, that's what good scoring should do. It should make you feel 
more than the nothing that it's actually made of. <laughs> yeah, well, that that fast violin stuff definitely did. That definitely gave me that sense of pace and and uh, you know eagerness or anxiety. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then I I absolutely remember thinking I wish there had been there was I wish there was more of that. Okay, one of the things I really did like the first when I first watched it, I thought, "Ooh, that was good." Was in I think it's the second major montage bit. It's sort of at the beginning of the second segment, and we see uh, the wagon trains going west. Okay. Is that passage we just listened to that made an impression on me was one of the few times I sort of felt music-related emotions because it kind of evokes awe and fear and the scale of the of the whole thing, the mystery of where they're going. Okay. And I felt like that there was really very little of that in the movie, and there was room for so much of it. And I think in part why I liked that moment is because the visual was not strongly different from any other of the many vistas you see, and so you as the viewer are sort of have to dig a little deeper to figure out what it corresponds to. And I found that gratifying. And again, I felt a little starved for it. Those, the, the, the violins sort of like storm effects, uh, but there's no storm on screen. I don't know. Did you enjoy that? I like that bit. I did enjoy that bit. And I think it's important that we don't, uh, you know, fall into the trap of being too easily disparaging of, you know, what is obviously very expert music. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I really appreciated Alfred Newman as having a style, and I'm not sure I come away from this That's feeling that he does, but I do appreciate uh, him as being expert, absolutely. Yeah, expert. Uh, yeah, I think ultimately, despite these, you know, I, I'm sorry I didn't take as detailed notes as you about specific instances that I enjoyed, but there were others that I, I did specifically enjoy. Uh, but I think that ultimately this isn't a you know, short list greatest score because it doesn't have that marriage between visuals and music that is, you know, memorable in itself, you know, where the specific association between what you're seeing and the, what you're hearing is itself memorable, which I think, you know, that kind of transcendence uh, amalgam, that alchemical combination of music with uh, other storytelling is what really makes all the other scores on this list special. And That's it, absolutely right. Yeah, it doesn't quite, this doesn't quite get to that. Now, this score had a soundtrack release in 1962. Not every score did at the time. And I think that some of its reputation is from people who just like the music by itself. And I think that it, you know, if you change those to be the terms, I'm still not sure this is number 25, but I think it's certainly... I mean, I listened to this double album that has all the music, which is really a lot, more than anyone really wants. The The original album was shorter, but I can kind of understand someone saying, I like the epic sweep of some of this music just heard alone. Yeah. I think some of it probably stands alone a it little does, better. Yeah, I think it does stand alone. 
which again, uh, you know, isn't necessarily a good way to judge a film score, but, uh, you know, it, it correlates to a good film score. Yeah, often can. All right. Well, that's how the West was won. It does not give me great confidence in the AFI list. Nonetheless, I think if we do another one of these, we should continue down the AFI list because what else is there? Why not? Right. <laughs> well, I bet there are other lists. But, you know, if we keep going up this list, we will come to a, a lot of undeniably great scores. Maybe I'll listen to this whole recording and be like, we're never doing that again. But um, <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, thanks say- for joining us. Yeah. Thank- uh, thanks for joining me, Andy. Oh, my pleasure, John. Just in case you didn't know which of us was which. <laughs> we should have... I think we did say it. No, we did say it. Yeah. I mean, we don't have a name for this thing. We, this is not going to be able to be used in its current form. We'll have to add some intro-outro stuff if we think that this is a salvageable conversation. But, yeah, I've been Andy. Uh, and you're still Andy. And I'm still Andy. Uh, so it's a success. I've been John. Uh, we'll talk to you, quote-unquote, next time. All right, I'm going to stop this. Okay? Okay, we did it. <laughs>